All right, church family, it is Bible study time. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're going to be. And if you've caught that title slide, and I know it's kind of small font, I didn't want to make it too big. We're aiming at covering a lot of text this morning. So make sure Bibles are in your laps. I want you to follow along with us as I trust that you always do. But uh, let's pray and we'll get into our study. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. And we come before you like we have every single moment of this service, Lord God, with desperation, with dependence, with an understanding that it is an honor, it's a joy to come and worship you, to thank you, to praise you with grateful hearts for all that you've done for us. And God, when we find ourselves in a text like we're going to find today where it kind of seems long and it kind of seems like it's a lot and it kind of seems like it doesn't maybe apply to us so much today, Father, it only seems that way. Because your word is living and active. And you chose this word to be made eternal of all the things that could have been encapsulated in the volume of your word. You chose this. And so that means it is for today. And there, there are things that you want to convey to us. So God, we pray that we'd see your heart. Jesus, we pray that we would see you in the text. That you could take this text and say, see, here this speaks of me. God, we don't want to miss you in the text. So Father, I just pray that you anoint my lips. I pray for your namesake and for your love for your people that you would reveal yourself through your word as you are the teacher and you shine light into every aspect of our lives and the different circumstances and situations we face in relationships. So Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and desire for you to be glorified. Amen. Well, as we get back, I I wanted to set this up ever so quickly because we've got a lot of text to cover. But I want us to to look at this. God is going to cover in the text, the two and a half chapters that we're going to look at this morning. God is going to tell us about some what if situations. All right. He's, He's going to say, in case this arises within the relationships that you, my people, find yourself in, Here's how I want you to handle it. And you're going to see there, there's a lot of different examples. And some of them, you're, you're going to say, that is with pinpoint accuracy exactly a situation that I found myself in. Sometimes you're going to say, that is just plain weird, and I never want to find myself in that situation. And I hope there's many of us we see, yes, there's a lot of those. But then there's just going to be some that we can just see could happen, have probability of happening. And so we want to understand what is God's heart for relationships. That's what he's talking about here in, in, these, in these next three chapters. God is going to give us several practical examples about how obeying his Ten Commandments look in everyday life. So I want us to, to, to understand that the past two weeks we talked about God's top ten, the Ten Commandments that he gave to all the people as he audibly spoke to the entire nation of Israel. But now he's going to pull Moses aside. Well, well, the people are going to request that Moses be pulled aside. We'll read that in a minute. But then it's going to be a private conversation between God and Moses, but not just for Moses. So Moses would go back and tell the people, here is how to practically apply the Ten Commandments. So just note that God's going to reiterate the Ten Commandments in some form or another, and he's going to give us practical examples of how we are to obey. Now here's the part that's kind of been vexing to me. Why does God know he needs to tell us all these things? Because he knows our heart. He knows the human condition. He knows what sin does in our hearts. That it's a lie from the beginning. 
it deceives us, it hardens us, and then it leads to destruction, death of some kind in our lives. So God, because he knows, because he loves us, is giving all these different examples so we can hear from him how he feels about these different life situations and how they affect our relationship. So just big picture here, that's the main theme. This is God's heart for our relationships with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbor, who we learned last week is all-encompassing all those people within proximity to us. So God's word speaks, God's word shows light into all these situations situations of our lives. So with that, let's jump right into it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, picking up where we left off right after God has concluded speaking the 10 commandments. Verse 18 says, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now, as we read these verses, we're seeing something that has been different from what we've been talking about for the past two weeks. The past two weeks, our focus has kind of been up on that mountain, right? All the people's focus has been up on the mountain as they're all standing there in awe, in wonder, trembling, because God is showing all of this majesty, all of his power and might, and most importantly, he's speaking, and they're all listening intentively as God has been speaking these 10 commandments. But here in verse 18 and kind of starting here, our focus is now going to kind of go down the mountain to the bottom of the hill for a minute and say, what's going on with all the people? And we're told they're trembling. This, this situation is terrifying. And we know it's terrifying by the reaction and their requests. They're going to say, Moses, hey, from now on, you go speak with God. You, you tell us what God says. We don't want God to speak with us in this capacity anymore, lest we die. Right? It's so terrifying. They think we may die. Whatever's going to happen, we step too close. This is too dangerous for us. So Moses, you be our mediator. Moses, you be the go-between, but whatever God says to you and you tell to us, we will hear. And so I want us to understand that they request that the people make that request. It's almost as if Moses is like, oh no, come on, I want to hear God speak to all of you because he says, he says, don't fear. God has come to test you. God has come to put his fear in you to create this reaction that you all have. You're showing exactly what God wanted you to show in this moment, which was just that you have the knowledge that the fear of God is the beginning of, right? The Proverbs is for the fear of knowledge is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that's beautiful that he says because knowledge is understanding that something is, understanding that God is. God exists. God is almighty. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. They have that knowledge. But wisdom is how to apply that knowledge and that's a reverential fear. Even trembling, standing afar off, knowing that there is a separation. God is holy, I am not. God is God, I am not. But then there's also an understanding that he's invited me here. He carried me on eagle's wings. I got it right, eagle's wings. I've been working on that. I've been messing that up the past two weeks. 
But what I love, and we'll talk more about this as we close, Moses' heart says, I agree with all that. I have fear too. I'm trembling too. But what I want, I want to go near. Why? Because that's where God is. Despite all those, I still want to go near. And I want that to be our hearts. That's why we're here reading through this text. But we want to have a heart like Moses. We want to go near. Because that's where God is. And his word reveals his heart to us and we want to know that but do just understand the people stand afar off Moses is the only one who's going to go near and now it's the private conversation between God and Moses but for all the people Moses is going to tell all these people later what God said verse 22 tells us that it says then the Lord said to Moses thus you shall say to the children of Israel it's a message for them You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you've profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So I want you to make note of this. We're going to see this throughout our our time this morning in the text. God is going to reiterate his Ten Commandments. So he's hitting the first two right here, right? You shall have no other gods before me. He says, there are no other gods before me. There are no gods besides me. So he says, don't make any. No need to make anything to be with me. Don't make any engraven images, no idols. You don't need those things to come and worship me. All is going to happen is you're going to make those things and they're actually going to become the object of your worship. And God says, I don't want that. Worship me in spirit and in truth. We're going to see keep it pure, keep it simple is how God wants them to worship. So he says, tell the children of Israel this. Tell them, these are the words that you've heard from me. And I think that verse is important because remember what's going on. Moses is going to be up and he's going to be up on this mountain for a while. And he's going to come down. He's going to have the word of the Lord. And they had just heard God speak. They requested that Moses go on their behalf. So there should be nobody questioning, uh, are these your words, Moses? Are these God's words? They all know they're God's words. This is what came out of his mouth. So that's what he's speaking here. But he's saying, show them the powerful, authoritative words that I'm going to speak. What we're talking about now are just as powerful and authoritative as the Ten Commandments. It's still God's word. But they're just coming from a different perspective, reiterating what we've talked about as God's top 10. But no other gods before me, no idols. He wants to reiterate how he wants to be loved. So he he says that I am the creator, you are my creation, and if my creation creates something, there's no way they're able to fully encapsulate who I am as their creator. So what you make with your hands, as awesome as you think it is, it's going to be far less than who I am, which means I don't like it. Don't even waste your time building it. I don't want it. Just come to me. I want your heart. I want you to come to me again in spirit and in truth. So don't even try to do it that way. Don't make those things. However, I want you to notice what God says for them to make. Verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me. 
And he's saying, this is where you shall offer burnt offerings, holy consumed offerings to the Lord, peace offerings. We're going to talk a lot more about the sacrificial system of the old covenant. We'll talk a lot more about this in the weeks to come. But God is saying, in every place that I establish for you, in every place that I tell you to make an altar, when you make an altar, keep it pure, keep it simple, but I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to bless you there. Worship me in that way. And so it's beautiful as you kind of see some of these things being spoken by God. This is God's heart. But I've always found this interesting. Maybe you have as well. I've always found it interesting that, that God gives the Ten Commandments. God gives the law. And then Moses and him, they're going to go back up the mountain. We presume Moses goes back up the mountain. But the very next thing God does is he says, all right, here's what you want. Here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to make an altar where you can offer sacrifices that are going to temporarily cover the sin. What sin? The sin of not keeping the Ten Commandments I just gave you. On the same mountain, right after he gives the the Ten Commandments, virtually the same time, he says, here's what you're to do, and here's what you're to do when you don't do what you're supposed to do. And I've always been amazed by that. Why would God give us something that he knew we couldn't keep for that purpose alone? To show us we can't keep God's perfect law. We can't keep what God lays out for us. We need a substitutionary atonement. We need a sacrifice, innocent blood being shed to cover my guilty life for, for, for not living up to God's righteous standard. And so he shows here, we see the gospel message in a sense right here in Exodus chapter 20 as the Lord is speaking these things in motion. But I think some of us are, we maybe, maybe scratch our heads here, but just understand this proves to us that God knows we're going to be lawbreakers. Now that doesn't mean that we should just sin so grace abound, right? Paul says, by no means, right? We've died to sin in Christ. But we're just pointing out nobody's ever been justified by the law. Nobody was ever going to be justified by the law. That's why God gave the sacrificial system commanding them they need to build an altar to offer the blood of bulls and goats for the temporary covering of their sin on the very day in the very moment. Don't think that God was like, yeah, six months later, I really thought they could do it. All right, we better, we better create a sacrificial system. It happens at the same time because God knows our heart. And God is setting something up. And we can look at this whole situation and see Jesus. When we talk about needing innocent blood to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, to be able to take our place in a perfect capacity because we are imperfect, we are less than perfect, we are sinners, that's what it means. We missed the mark, we're less than perfect. That just points us to Jesus. Jesus kept the law in our place. Jesus fulfilled what we could not fulfill. And then he lays his life down in a sense on an altar on a cross where he can be the substitutionary atonement for our lives but that's what we're seeing here but I want you to catch some of these other beautiful things because the picture doesn't stop there God says of this altar it should be made of earth or it should be made of stones but he says just go pile up some stones leave them as they are don't Don't pull out your tools and think I'm going to create hewn stone. I want to make this thing beautiful. He says the more you, he doesn't even say the more, as soon as you take a tool and start to make something more beautiful, all you're doing is profaning 
the altar. You're making it common. You're polluting what I want to do there. What God is saying is ultimately, I don't need your human hands to get involved in the sacrifice I'm going to accept on your behalf. Did you catch that? I don't need your human hands. We don't need to help God save us. That's a work all his own. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so there is no boasting. And we see that picture right here. When you make an altar, as you're commanded to do, don't pull out your tools and try to make it beautiful. And he says, don't make an altar so high that you need steps to get up there. Why? Because now you've got to work your way up there to make a sacrifice. No human effort, God says. Don't make steps. Don't create any hewn stone. Don't chip away any rocks. Don't try to make it beautiful. All you will do is profane it. And the, the sacrifice you offer there is going to be a work of your hands, not a work that I want to receive. Right here in this section, it all points to Jesus. It's, it's as if God is saying, keep it pure, keep it simple, keep your human hands out of it. And I love that because it points back to the very first time we see in our Bibles God wanting to be worshipped through a sacrifice. I put the verses in your study guide, but in Genesis chapter 2, the very first time the word worship is used in our Bibles, worship, how important is worship to God? The very first time it's used, the precedent set in Genesis chapter 22, and, and who is it between? It's between Abraham and his son Isaac. It's between a father and a son. They're going to have all the other servants with them. Stay back. Them alone. They're going to go up the mountain. Our salvation, our, our receiving faith, our receiving salvation through faith is between a father and a son. God the Father, Jesus the Son. Just like picture with Abraham and Isaac. But remembering kind of how the whole situation goes. Remember, Isaac's carrying the wood. Isaac's going to make that famous statement. He says, hey, hey, dad, we have the wood. We have the fire. Where's the lamb? And that question hangs out there until John the Baptist says, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But even in that moment, it's all pointing to Jesus. So I just want you to connect that God wanting exactly what he desires now, pure and simple worship, a, a, a broken and contrite spirit coming before the Lord in humility. God always knowing he doesn't need our human hands to get involved to make something better. When we, make, when we think we're going to make it better, we're muddying it up. We're making it worse. So, so we want to come to the Lord in simplicity. We want to keep it simple and, and no steps, plural. There's just one step. Whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Just one step. Come to Jesus. Repent. Change your mind. Confess your sin. Come to him and surrender and you will be saved. So that's the same picture that he's saying. I'm commanding you to do this. I want you to do this. Keep it simple. Keep it pure. But God's going to then move on to some of these other commandments as he talks here first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As Jesus summed up those first four, he's now going to move on to the next six, how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. The next two chapters here, this is about loving our neighbor or God's heart for our relationships with our fellow man. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Now Judgments, ordinances. These are more commandments that God is going to be laying out for his people. Remember, Moses, here's the judgments. You are to go down that mountain and tell the people. I expect them to obey me in this. 
as well. Verse 2, he says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free and pay nothing. Now just give me, I'll give you a little bit of context here. Within the nation of Israel, within the Hebrew people, God is going to permit somebody to sell themselves to their neighbor. Now, this is not going to foreign nations and buying slaves. That's not what God is talking about here. This was a situation where if I'm a Hebrew person and I've found myself in debt, I've found myself in poverty, I cannot provide for my family. We're all going to starve to death, right? There's there's no chapter 11 bankruptcy where I can wipe the slate clean and, and start over. There's, there's no other programs that I can do within the nation state. What I can do, what God permits, is I can come to my Hebrew neighbor and say, hey, I, I need to sell myself into servitude. I'm willing to sell myself to be your servant, to be your slave. If you'll pay off my debt, I'll work it off. God says, I will permit that, but you're only to allow that person to work six years, and on the seventh year, he goes free. And on the seventh year, all debts are wiped clean. If they've sold land on the seventh year, the land doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to the Lord. He's given it to them as an inheritance, and he wants it to stay within the family line. So everything gets wiped clean. It wasn't a permanent state, at least in this context, six years, and they go free. So that's what he's talking about here. Verse 3, speaking of the same person who has to sell themselves into slavery or servitude. It says, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if... The servant plainly says, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. So check this. This is an amazing picture that God is working in here. Another, another picture that we can clearly see Jesus. God says, let's say somebody sells themselves to you and, and finds themselves serving you. You are their master. And they, they work their six years. But what they find is during those six years, they find out my master is a good man. My master is a good master. My master loves me. My master cares for me. My master has not only taken me in, redeemed me, given me lodging, food. My master paid my debt. My master gave me a wife. My master gave me children. My master has given me a future and a hope. And now the seventh year comes and you think, you know, I don't want to go back to living the life that I used to live. I was not living the way I, I was supposed to live. That's how I got myself in that situation in the first place. So what I really want to do is stay right here with my master. I don't want to go free. God says, you have the opportunity to do that. You just need to make that known publicly. You, you let your intentions be known to your master. You go before the judges. And as, if everybody's in agreement, you go to the doorpost and they pierce your ear through with an all to signify that you are your masters, that you are a bond servant now no longer sold into servitude paying off debt now you're there by choice you've bound yourself to your to your master and you don't want to go free because you love him with all your heart and you want to stay there and what's so beautiful about this is we're thinking about this we say why would they do that 
Don't they want to be free? Isn't the goal in life to be free? Christians, the goal in life is not to be free. The goal in life is to find the right master. True freedom is truly found when you find the right master. What does Jesus say? He was, he was, he was found the son. He was free as free indeed. He was, who's come to Jesus has been set free as free indeed. That's, that's really what we're pointing out here is if you find the right master, you find everything. And that's the goal in life. Because think about this. This world is a cruel master. Sin is a cruel master. Money, a useful servant, a cruel master. Success, power, promotion, drugs, alcohol, pornography, a cruel master. You'll hear people say, well, no, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I can do all those things. I can engage all those things. The problem is, can you stop? Because if you can't stop, what have you actually found yourself in? You're in bondage to a cruel master. And in this situation, a person has to sell themselves into slavery. Whatever they've been doing hasn't been working. And they found a good master who's given them everything that they've truly longed for. True freedom, true acceptance in being able to stop living under bondage and oppression, truly free. And so that's what we're seeing here. The goal in life is to learn Jesus, to learn him, to know him, to serve him, to follow him, to be identified by him as a bondservant, to come to Jesus and say, you are my Lord, you are my master. I want to be identified by you. And I do that willingly, right? That's what a bondservant is. I'm choosing to lay down my life, to follow follow after you because that's what you did for me. Think about this. Paul, Timothy, Peter, James, Jude, they all identify themselves in the same way as a bondservant willing to lay themselves down. And they do it for the same reasons we find right here. They just love their master. They love him with all their heart and they want to serve him forever. I love that it says forever right there. But I can look at my own life. Some of you, you can look at your own life and say, this is, this is my life. I was chasing after the wrong things. I was serving the wrong master. I was serving self. I was in spiritual debt past my eyeballs. I was morally bankrupt. I needed to be redeemed. And that's when someone told me about Jesus. They told me about another way, and they said, Jesus is that way. And Jesus, he accepted me. He took me in. He washed me. He paid my debt. And then he gave me a position to serve him. He gave me a wife. He gave me kids. He gave me a future and a hope. Why would I want to go anywhere else? Peter says, where else shall we go? Lord, you have the words of life. That's what a bondservant says. That's what a bondservant realizes. Jesus, you've done all this for me. You've changed me from the inside out, transformed me. I don't want to be anywhere else. Jesus, I want to serve you forever. Take the all, pierce my ear. I'm your or in our context, take me to the waters of baptism where I can make the public profession of the inward change and let everybody know I'm a new creation in Christ now. I'm following after Jesus. I don't ever want to go back to the life that I was living before because I'm just not the same as I used to be. God's love like that all has pierced through my heart and transformed me. This is a picture of what it looks like to come to Jesus and be transformed. 
heart. So we see Jesus all over this, but practically when we're just talking about God's heart for relationships with other people, he would be saying, be like this master. Don't be like the one who's beating their servants. Don't be like the one who's killing their servants. If you find yourself in a situation where somebody's going to indebt themselves to you, be like Jesus. Be such a good master. Give them good things. Treat them honorably. Treat them the way God has treated you and I. He gave his life for us. He held nothing back from us. And we want to be like him in those instances. We want to give all that we have because Jesus gave all that he had for us. And there's no greater, there's no greater thing to do than to imitate Jesus as he has borne that desire in us. So be a master like this. Be a boss or an employer like this. Be a business owner like this. Be a father or a mother like this. Be a friend or a brother or a sister like this. Let Jesus be visible in the interactions of your life. Let people see that it's just like what Jesus did. The greatest compliment we can see, man, you're a lot like Jesus. What what a beautiful thing to say. Verse 7 says, And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who is betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he is betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. And if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying any money. Now here's another interesting section. This certainly grabs the attention of you ladies. What's going on here? Well, let's understand. It's a similar situation like we just talked about. Family runs into some financial troubles, debt, poverty, struggling to survive. It's either starved to death or it's try to use this advantage and say, hey, I can sell somebody into servitude, indebted servitude, and try to pay off some of this to be able to survive. So if you have a daughter who is able to be wed. I want you to think about what God just does here. In the, in the, the, the world outside of Israel and in, in Egypt, there was no three things that God was saying you had to keep in order for this to be honored. It was like, just do what you got to do. God is saying, no, 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 you don't treat my daughters that way. God loves his sons and his daughters and he gives three things that have to be kept or this whole thing is nullified and the debt has been washed, right? Think about it that way. God is saying, this is how I want it to be done. If a man is going to sell his neighbor, his daughter, or his neighbor's son, his daughter, depending on her age, but a woman who's able to be wed, not to a foreign people, but within the nation of Israel. This was a time of arranged marriages. So this is looked at as a betrothal. You're, you're selling this daughter. You're accepting a bride price. So she is going to be betrothed. That's why after the six years, that seventh year, she's not to go free because she's betrothed. There's, there's a promise. There's a commitment. There's a future marriage that is at stake here. But the neighbor, look at what the neighbor has to do. Look at the protections God is setting up for the woman. He wants her loved. He wants her treated fairly. He wants her provided for. So he gives three outs to this situation if any of these things are not done. He says, if it just doesn't work out, 
It, it just doesn't seem like the, the promise is what it was made. It was, it was deceit. It says that father can redeem that daughter at, at any time. There, there's, the deal's broken. If the daughter becomes betrothed to one of the sons, she is now to be treated as a daughter within that family and provided for. If the betrothal doesn't lead to marriage, that woman is to be cared for, treated again as a daughter, as an equal member in that household. If either of those things don't happen, she is free to go. But please understand, this is God giving laws where there was no laws for the protection of women, for the protection of these daughters whom he loves and cares about and wants them treated fairly, justly, honorably, even in the context. Please know, none of that was happening in any other cultures in the world at this time. But God sees, God knows, God speaks these things into motion. Verse 12 says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Simple, thou shall not murder. Remember, don't kill. We talked about that last week. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint you a place where he may flee. Now what he's speaking here is if it was accidental, it's, it's involuntary manslaughter. You're, you're chopping down trees, you're swinging an axe, the axe head flies off and smacks somebody else in the head and they die. You weren't lying in wait. There was no premeditation. It was an accident. God says, well, you need to go to a city of refuge. That's what he's going to set up, a place where you can flee and be safe for the avenger of blood, that other person designated in a family to pursue you, right? You're going to be safe. Let justice be known, be found out. Give it time to sort out what happened here. But he's going to set up cities of refuge. It's involuntary manslaughter. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. It's a capital offense. Life for a life we're going to see. 15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Right? Honor your father and your mother and it will go well with you. You will have long life. You can't strike your mother or father. That's a capital punishment. Life for, well, not even life for life. But it's just that's capital punishment. 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment, worthy of death to kidnap another human being. Don't steal. 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death, right? God is, is expound, he's, he's expounding on these and he's reining it in. Don't even curse your mother or father or that's a capital punishment. 18, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted, meaning they don't have to die, the capital punishment, they're acquitted from that. Listen though, he shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. You get in a fight and it's an altercation and it's, this guy's maybe bigger than you, so you pick up a rock and just bang, you smack him beside the head, he doesn't die. If he dies, there's capital punishment. If he doesn't die, you're acquitted, but you have to take care of him, make restitution, make sure he's going to have what he needs until he's back on his feet. That's what God says. It's on, it's on that person. 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished life for life. 
21, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So that's a situation if he doesn't die, but he's down and out for a little while, can't work. Well, you actually hurt yourself because they were supposed to be your servant helping work for you. So you don't pay them for what they couldn't do. You're actually suffering because they're not able to work for you as you paid originally. 22, listen to this. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows. Speaking of the child, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows the child, then you shall give life for life. I want you to catch this. God's perspective, two men fighting, they, they, they maybe get, get pushed into a pregnant woman. God does not specify at what term, how far along that pregnant woman is. He says, if that child is born prematurely, he calls it a child, by the way, and he says, if that child dies from God's perspective, that is a life, and it is life for life. Life for life. Note that. God calls that baby inside that womb a child. It's a life. Verse 24, or 23, he says, but if any man harm, if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, please know that is justice, not vengeance, right? If there's an accidental circumstance, you need to let justice take its place. If they're intentional, it's to match. The penalty should fit the crime. That's where we get that idea. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever the case may be, burn for burn, stripe for stripe. But it's justice. Now, in Jesus's day, the Pharisees would teach this had to be done. This was mandatory, But listen, Jesus taught us a totally different way. He says, but you can forgive. You you can turn the other cheek. You can give them your second cloak. You can go with them the extra mile. You can forgive as I've forgiven you. It's not mandatory. We can extend mercy. We can give the gift of grace. So please know that. That's how Jesus teaches us a new way. But this this is the heart. This is God's heart for relationships. Verse 26 says, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. Or if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted, found no guilt. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past and has been made known to his owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. If there is imposed upon him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or a female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. 
Think about what God is saying. If a person has an animal, now in this case an ox, but we could apply this to all sorts of situations. But he says if that ox gets out and gores somebody, that ox absolutely has to be put to death and nobody gets any prime rib, nobody gets any steak, everything dies, you don't eat it. God makes you know you don't eat it. That animal is to be put down because it's caused harm to another person. And in God's value system, people are more valuable than animals. People are made in the image of God. People are the the, the pinnacle of God's creation. Animals are below people. So he says that animal has to die. He values our life. He shows the value of human life. Now, if that's the first time the situation has happened, that animal gets out and the owner didn't know that the animal was dangerous, fine, the owner's off the hook, no guilt. But if that animal is known to thrust, if that animal was known to be vicious, if that animal has bitten somebody or gored somebody, before, previously, and you didn't do anything about it, right? What does it say? I'm going to try to get this right. Dog bites me once, dog's fault. Dog bites me twice, my fault, right? You should have known. You know. So if that, if the owner doesn't take care of the ox the second time, notice the ox and the owner are to be killed because you knew you had a dangerous animal. Now God does say in verse 30, there can be arrangements made to impose a sum of money to redeem that person's life. But verse 32, he says, if, if that ox gores a servant, the price to be paid for that servant is 30 shekels of silver. The price of a gored servant, 30 pieces of silver. I hope that sounds familiar. Because there was a gored servant, Jesus, who was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And I want you to think about, here it is. I, I wonder when God speaks this into existence, when he's speaking this to Moses here, I wonder, does he have his son in mind? My son's going to be a gourd servant like this? My, my son, Jesus, the son of God, he's going to let go of, for a time, his privileges as God, as the second member of the Trinity. He's going to empty himself of his divine privileges. He's going to take on the likeness of men coming in the form of what a bond servant, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. And he's going to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And he's going to be gourd. He's going to be speared in the side. And he will be all of that betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see in this moment, I just wondered, is, is God thinking about these? He's outside of time and space. He sees the beginning at the end at the same time. And when he speaks, he says, I, I know the value that I'm speaking in here. I know that my son is going to pay this. But just keep that in mind. Like Jesus is revealing things about himself, even in texts like these about oxes and, and horns and all these different things that are going on here. Verse 33 if a man opens a pit, maybe maybe digging a well or a cistern or something, if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his, right? The dead animal is going to be his because you've got to get it out of the hole, right? How hard is that going to be? There's, there's no forklifts or, or backhoes in this day. That's going to be a tricky situation. But isn't it weird that like God's saying, yeah, this is going to happen, right? You're going to need to know this. That's why I'm telling you this. God doesn't just waste his breath. He's not sitting there talking because he loves to hear the sound of his own voice. He knows this situation is going to come about. 35, if one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live oak, 
ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. It's almost like, hey, you should just have a barbecue, right? This happened, it was unfortunate, but hey, split the dead ox, have a barbecue, make it good, get to know each other. Maybe a strange way to meet your neighbor, but even even then God could work it out. 36, or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owner had not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. And, and I know we're reading this, you're like, what is going on here? Why all these accidents with oxes? Oxidants, right? These are oxidents that are going on here. What's going on? I don't even have an ox. I've never even seen an ox. Why is this in our Bibles? Because if you change this scenario just a little bit, you can see how things like this happen in our lives all the time. Fender benders. Or just sometimes things happen where it just, I feel offended. I feel like you did something I don't like. Your your ox killed my ox figuratively, right? You, You shot down my idea. You didn't smile at me when I smiled at you. You didn't say hi to me. Whatever it is, Christians, we have things less petty than this that get us all up in arms against each other. We have oxidants all throughout our lives. And God is saying, I want you to do this. I want you to make it right. God cares enough about us to be able to say, I want you to see this situation handled the right way. Please know this, it's not to say God doesn't care about the oxen. He created the animals. He cares about them. But look at this verse I want to show you. This is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I need to flip there because I didn't put it in my notes. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 10. It says this. Paul says, you see it on your screen. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. But listen, he says, is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? He says, for our sakes, no doubt. So while yes, he cares about his creation, listen, he cares about our hearts even more. He cares about what happens and the, the, the desire to retaliate over some of these situations. So we want to see this with God's heart. God cares about it. So, so make it right. Be reasonable on both sides. Be gracious. Strive to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. We can all offend each other. We can all run to situations. But what we don't want to do is don't assume that it was malicious. Don't assume that it was intentional. Christians, don't assume at all. Go to that person. Go to that person. Go to that person. What do you do when you're offended? Go to that person. What do you do when you feel like somebody's maybe maybe cold to you? Go to that person. What do you do when you feel that there's distance or awkwardness between someone? Go to that person. Can I be more clear about that? You, Christian, go to that person. Don't gossip about it. Don't let a big old divide be created in your heart. That person may not even know they offended you. Go to that person and say, hey, you know what? My ox killed your ox or your ox killed my ox or whatever it may be. If anybody's ox gets hurt, don't bring it to me because you've just heard you know what you're supposed to do. Go to that person. And then you follow steps. Bring another person. Go with the heart to reconcile. Go with the heart to make it good. Go with the heart to find restitution. Go to a heart to win back that relationship. But that's what God is saying. That's God's heart for our relationships. This should happen between Christians. This should happen in families. This should happen between the family of God. 
We have been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We have the same Father. We have the same Lord. We have the same Spirit dwelling inside of us. Yes, things are going to happen. But no, we don't have to make it worse. We can handle it the right way. Come in humility. Be willing to admit you were wrong if you were wrong. Apologize. Try to win that situation back. Make it right. In everything that we do, remember Jesus. Remember just this. Jesus absorbed every single one of our wrongs so he can make all things right. Think about that. Jesus committed not one sin. He was sinless, perfect, spotless, completely innocent of all charges. Yet he said, all become sin for them so that they can become the righteousness of God. Think about how powerful this. We have the opportunity to do that every single day, Christians. We can be like Jesus and maybe absorb a wrong for as long as it takes for us to give it to Jesus so he can ultimately absorb it and heal our hearts and we can move on in fellowship, in unity with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbor. This is just loving your neighbor as yourself. So value others as greater. Value others as worth it. Jesus taught us that one as well. This is just practical Christian living right here only with oxes, dealing with oxidants, whatever the situation may be. But see through the thread. See Jesus here. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, If a man steals an ox, oh boy, more oxes. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and feeds it in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best, the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. But here's God, just he's, he's just elaborating. Don't steal from each other. Don't steal, the Lord says, right? Don't covet, don't steal. He told us that in the Ten Commandments, but he knows our hearts. So he elaborates, he says, don't steal oxen. Don't steal sheep. Don't steal grazing ground. And then notice he gives us restitution ratios here. He says, if the animals are stolen and then killed or, or, or sold, so you can't get them back. Listen, he says, one ox, restoration ratio, five oxen. One sheep, restoration ratio, four sheep, right? You sell it, you slaughter it. That's what you have to repay me. That's, that's God's form of justice. And it was a deterrent. You're thinking, well, that's, that's a steep, that's a steep price. What's the answer? Don't steal, right? It should be a deterrent. This was expensive. Oxen were like tractors in this day. You didn't have five. You were, you were blessed to have one. And so you didn't steal from each other. And if you did, there was a steep price to be able to pay. Now, if someone did steal, he says, if it's at night and then an altercation happens, the thief is struck and the thief, the thief dies, God says this is justifiable homicide. Verse two, no guilt for the bloodshed because it was dark you couldn't see what was going on you saw someone was breaking in was he going to harm you is he going to harm your wife is he going to harm your family you get an altercation he dies no guilt justifiable homicide
homicide. However, same situation, verse 3, if the theft happens in the daytime, it's in the light. Now you can see, well, this guy's trying to steal my sheep or my oxen. There will be guilt if you go out and kill him then. God is saying, and don't you know, worst case scenario, you're going to get double from the situation. Let him steal it if he wants to. Let justice, let vengeance be the Lord's. Let God repay and you're going to get more from the situation. God is going to make it right. That's what he's telling you. Don't take, don't take that situation into your own hands. It's not to say you shouldn't try to prevent it, but don't kill the guy, right? Let, let justice, let what God is setting out as an ordinance be able to handle that situation. If we look at this, this whole restitution ratio, this to me, it just shouts more Jesus in our lives. It just shouts more of what, what Jesus has done when we come into relationship with him. This whole restoration, restoration ratio idea. I'm amazed at how we can live our lives and you can have X amount of years. I love to say 19 years of my life. I was living for myself. I was living in sin. I was pursuing all the wrong masters, right? And 19 years of sin redeemed in a moment. And worst case, right, the the very least, God restores double. Because at that moment, he gives me abundant life then and eternal life forever. He gives me my life back. He redeems me. And then he says, you can have eternal life forever, right? At the very least, it's double. But if we really want to get into it and the blessings that follow after you commit your life to Jesus, after you allow Jesus to restore and apply his restoration ratio, they're incalculable. I mean, there's so many. It's in abundance greater than can be numbered. No eye has seen nor, nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's incalculable. His restoration ratio is just like this. So trust the Lord. And even if that means, I'm going to, fine, I'll be wronged in this situation. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Knowing that God is not going to miss anything. God is not going to miss the opportunity. Vengeance is his. He can restore. He will repay. And nobody gets away with anything. That's just God's heart for how we can relate to other people. But that's also what he does. I love that Jesus does that for us, redeeming what we're doing, grasping for air, or what we're doing sometimes completely missing the mark. Chapter over six says, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it's stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. He's saying, hey, did the, you, you lend your stuff to a neighbor. It's at his house. You go on vacation somewhere. You're out of town. And your stuff gets stolen from his house. Say, well, was it an honest thing? Did a thief come and steal his stuff? Or are you like, hey, all of your stuff is here. It's just my stuff is gone. I mean, I don't think thieves are all that smart to be able to calculate only my stuff. Were you in on this, right? That's, that's, that's what they're saying. Were you in on this? And so he says, nine, for any kind of trespass, pass, whether it concerns an ox or a donkey or a sheep or clothing or, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, 
then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand to his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. He's saying, he's saying, we take this matter before the judges. The guy says, hey, the, he lent me his animal, he lent me his stuff. I, was, I don't know what happened. Someone, someone broke in, I don't have it. I don't have it. They take it before the judges and say, sure seems like it's word against word here. We don't know. So what you're both going to do, you're going to go before the altar of God. You're going to make an oath and say, Lord, I didn't do it. I'm, I'm promising before God that I didn't do it. And you say, if, he, if they do that before the Lord, that's going to be good enough because God will take it from there. That's what they're saying here. You need to accept that. 12. But if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. Listen to this. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. Think about that. You got to find that carcass and find some of those bones and say, hey, see, those aren't my teeth on that, right? An animal did that. That's a beast that started chewing on that thing. And you got to, you got to provide the evidence. 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If the owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. So you, you borrow something from your neighbors, right? But then what do you do? You lend it to somebody else. That other person breaks it or damages it, or in this case it's an animal that it dies. You who borrowed it are responsible for it. Now if you borrow it and it happens under your watch, the animal dies, God says it dies, right? It was hired. Sometimes that happens. That's the risk the owner was willing to take to lend it to you in the first place. But as we think about some of these things. It's crazy, but these are important. They could all be summed up as we're trying to capture God's heart for relationships, how we are to treat other people. It could all be summed up. Don't cheat each other. Don't lie to each other. Don't rip each other off. Don't try to swindle something out of something that's not yours. Don't steal. Don't covet. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat each other's things like the way you want your things to be treated. Make restitution when necessary. Return something in at least the condition or better than you found it. Right? These are things that just, they, they, they should, we should just know. But if they're not being taught, we're not going to know. So I'm hoping you know now because they're being taught. If you do something wrong, make it right. Take accountability and make it right. Make effort to make it right. Show love and respect to the people around them. Value them because God values them. And if God values them, we have to value them because he determines the value for all things. That's what he's saying. And I I love to say, wouldn't it be easy? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a society that everybody treated each other this way? That everybody was just honest. Everybody was just forthcoming. Everybody was willing to lend, knowing that even if it doesn't come back, I know you're going to make it right. Listen, one day it will be like this. But that place is going to be heaven. Because right here, right now, we still live in a place where rust and moth destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where the prince of the power of the air speaks lies and deceit to try and stir up division amongst even the brethren. But I'm here to say to you, Christians, to you, my church family, let that not be said of you and I. This is God's moral law. This is God's heart for how we are to treat one another. Be someone that can be trusted. Be someone who's accountable. Be someone who says, hey, I'm not even worried about this because I know you're going to make it right. Your character speaks volumes. You'll, you'll make it right if something isn't right. And you know that. 
So that's what he's saying here. Love God, love people is ultimately what he's saying. Now we've got some ceremonial laws and a few more moral, moral laws here. But, but look at this. Verse 16 says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and he lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. This is where we get the idea for the shotgun wedding. This guy entices a virgin who's not betrothed. They have relations, marital relations, although they're not yet married. Well, now it's time for him to penny up, pay the bride price, be accountable. That's to be his wife. Verse 17 says, If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So the father says, There's no way I'm allowing this guy to marry my daughter. He's a scoundrel. Look at what he did here. No, he still has to pay and pay even more because he's defiled a virgin and it's going to be harder for her to marry the next time. But I just want you to see that. Think about all these things. There are consequences for our actions. Please, 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 please think before you act. Try to, to think it through. Sometimes we get so caught up in the moment. So many of these things can be impulse. There's a great price to pay if we live that way. Slow down. Think it through. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Right? No, no mediums, no practicing divination, no trying to seek the demonic for wisdom. God says, not amongst my nation Israel. There's a spiritual purity that is to be had here. Any witch is a dead witch. There's no sorcery to be allowed. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal, bestiality, shall surely be put to death. I mean, that's self-explanatory. That's sexual purity. That's, that's, that is what it is, but that's, that's clearly stated. Verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Don't, don't have idols. There are no other gods before the Lord. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember where you came from. Remember, you know what it's like to be a stranger. You know what it's like to be afflicted. Don't treat people that way. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. God loves widows and orphans, and he wants us to care for them in their time of need. Verse 23, if you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, God says, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. How heavy is that? God says, Moses, you tell those people. You tell them to honor, treat, revere, respect widows and orphans. If they don't, and those widows, those children cry out to me, God says, I will repay. And I will bring that back upon them, those people. 2025, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. God's saying, don't profit off of your brethren within the nation of Israel. If somebody needs some money from you, and you're going to lend them, set reasonable terms, don't charge interest. 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. 
Think about what God says. He says, your neighbor comes to you. Your neighbor's poor. Your neighbor needs something from you and says, hey, I'm going to pledge my outer garment. I'm going to pledge my jacket. And you say, all right, I'll take it as a pledge, but you better have this back by, by the night. Listen, God says, whatever happens, whatever has happened or hasn't happened, by the time night comes, you go give that man back his garment. Why? Because God says, I am gracious. Why would I do that? Because God says, I am gracious. And I want that man covered when he sleeps. I want him to have, that's crazy awesome when you think about it. Because I've been that man without a garment. I've been that person who's, who's in need. And I think so have you. We've all in some capacity. And what do we find? God is gracious. That's how we can treat each other. That's how we ought to treat each other. 28, you shall not revile God, nor shall you curse a ruler of your people. We're going to see that when the people are going to rise up against Moses to, to curse Moses, God's appointed leader, is to curse God. And it's not going to end well for Korah and those with him. Check this out. Verse 29. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. No more text this morning, but let's finish this out. I love that he says this. Don't delay. Don't delay to give to God what is God's. If God has put it upon your heart to give as a tithe or an offering, don't delay. That's the first check I cut every single time God entrusts me with stewardship funds. I give it to him. Listen, not because he needs my money, because I want his blessing and I want him to see my expedited obedience, right? Don't delay. When God says, here's your first fruits of the field, don't delay in giving. Why would he say that? Because listen, the more we delay, the less likely we are actually going to be to do it. God speaks to your heart to do something. Don't delay. Expedite your obedience. Do it quickly is what he's saying. Give the firstborn of your sheep, of your oxen. Give the firstborn of your sons. Now, not your sons, not human beings to sacrifice, remember, but to redeem. There's a redeem price, and we talked about that when we were talking about Passover a few weeks ago. But that's what God is setting up. But as we start to close this out this morning, I know some of these things are strange and odd, and some of them are totally applicable for today. But in all of them, this is God's heart for relationship. Now, if we sum all of this up, I think it's amazing how God has just taken us. He starts at the bottom. He goes to the top. He starts with with servant, widow, orphan, beggar, farmer, rancher, all the way up to ruler. He says, this is how your relationships are supposed to be in your interactions with one another. But if we could sum all this up for us, if we could say the whole sermon in a sentence, here it is. Jesus is... God's heart for relationships. Jesus is God's heart for relationships. And when we think of what that means for us, how Jesus lives is how we are to live. Who Jesus values is who we should value. And who does he value? The world. He so loved the world that he gave himself for them. He died on a cross for the sins of the world. He rose again. Who he forgives, how he forgives, we should forgive. How he lives, how he loves, all of those things. Jesus is God's heart for relationships. So the conclusion is, I need more Jesus. When I read through these situations, I come, I say, I need more Jesus. I need more of his love. I need more of his light. I need more of his compassion. I need more of his kindness and his patience. I need more of his grace and his mercy, especially 
in the season of life that we're living in, where I hear so much every day that has a tendency to make me angry, I can let that be a righteous anger let at the foot of the cross and have it be brought up to love where I can actually be a part of the solution that God has called me to be a part of. But I need more Jesus. How do we get more Jesus? Uh, Let's flip back. You're thinking, oh no, we're going backwards now. Yes, but just for one verse. Chapter 20, verse 21. Here's our answer. It says, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. We can all sit back and say, here's God's word. Here's what he said. Here's what God has just spoken. Here's what God says, black and white, pretty clear. And we can say, am I going to step back, standing afar off, or am I going to press into Jesus, draw near? Why? Because that's where God is. And that's where he wants us to be. Listen, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we love like Jesus. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we look like him, the more we live like him, the more we think like him. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we love others like Jesus loves others. My wife can tell within two minutes if I've been spending time with Jesus or I haven't. And it's by the love that is just flowing out of me because of the intimacy that has been birthed in me with time spent with Jesus. So don't stand afar off. Come close. Even in the midst of some darkness, come close to Jesus. Draw near to him. Let him draw near to you. Let him fill you up. Fill your tank to overflowing to be who he's called you to be in the relationship that he's placed you in. Jesus is God's heart for relationship. And let's walk in that today. Let's pray and we'll have a couple more worship songs. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your text is living and it's active. And all these different things that we see, God, they're applicable for today. Help us apply these things. Help us see you in them, Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so we can reflect you in in all the relationships that are around us. We want people to see you, Jesus. We want people to see our works, what we do, and say, there is a God in heaven. And I want to know him. So Father, please fill us with your spirit and help us represent you as your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.